Look at all those kiddos going back. <laughs> well, good morning again. Uh, as a reminder, um, we still haven't been passing the offer plates around since COVID. You can give in the box there as you walk out by the doors. You can mail us a check or you can also give online. The title, of course, this morning is The Devoted Church. And our text we read earlier is Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. You know, far too many Christians think that God's plan is to bless them so they can be happy, successful, and financially secure. That's what they pray for, dare I say, that's what we pray for. Do you remember the prayer of Jabez that was a big fad a few years ago? It's the idea of praying, oh, bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be on me and keep me from harm so I will be free from pain. Most Christians, including you and I, are good at that type of praying. We love to pray for a blessing and freedom from pain. But how many of us are willing to pray for God to use us no matter the cost? As we turn our attention to the city of Philadelphia, it has succeeded in its endeavors to convert a Lydian culture to adopting the Greek lifestyle. God called the church there to do the same, to be a missionary people, to model to their community the love of God in such a way that others will be drawn to the gospel and turn their lives over to the one true God. Now the church there was small, didn't have much power and or influence, and they were suffering persecution at the hands of the Jews. However, Jesus was opening the door that no one could shut. He can give an open door, a door of opportunity and a door of ministry. He delights in giving the faithful and devoted an open door. May he find you and I faithful to him and to his word. May you and I find that open door and have the courage to walk through it. Now, the city itself was located 30 miles southeast of Sardis on the main trade route from Smyrna. There was a major postal road from Troas that went through Pergamum and Sardis and then Philadelphia heading east. It made it ideal for commerce, and that led to the city being referred to as the gateway to the east. It was also situated at the head of the trade and military route to Phrygia. And they expected to introduce Lydia and Phrygia to Greek ways. They had oriental customs at those two cities, and the goal was to make those two cities loyal subjects of the empire. Now, the efforts were successful by the first century because Greek had become the first language in those two places. They had volcanic soil that was extremely fertile. It was ideal for growing grapes. However, in AD 92, the emperor issued an edict demanding that at least half of the vineyards and all the promises promises be cut down and no new vineyards were to be planted. 
Now, there's two possibilities for this. Perhaps he wanted to check, uh, protect the vine growers in Italy and encourage the production of corn. But there was another problem, earthquakes. The one that happened in A.D. 17 that devastated Sardis, but it leveled Philadelphia, and aftershocks kept happening from some time after that earthquake, which led much of the populace to live outside the city into the fields and become farmers. Now remember that. No stability in that city. Look at verse 7, how it begins. He who is holy, the holy one, who is true or the true one. The essential significance of holy is that of distinction from all else that exists in the created order. This attribute of God is quintessential aspect of his character. Now, men and women can be also holy, but their holiness is imputed, a result of the work of Christ. In an ontological sense, holiness belongs to God himself. And once again, we see the Lord establishing the claim for his own deity. Look how also he describes himself, the one who is true, or the true one. And this contracts, uh, contrasts with generally unreliable character of the human family. He is the true one. He is genuine. He is authentic. He is trustworthy. And he is dependable. And in the context of persecuted Christians, this means he can be counted upon that he will vindicate them in their trials and reward them for their suffering. Ladies and gentlemen, dearly beloved, there's a day of reckoning coming and coming right soon. Look what else he says. Who has the key of David? Now the reference to this is back in Isaiah chapter 22 verses 20 through 23 that speaks of access to the king in his palace. Eliakim was a steward of Hezekiah who is paid to possess that key. Now one would approach Hezekiah through Elakim, his steward. Now you could approach the king other ways, but if you wanted to find favor with the king, you would go through Eliakim. The emphasis being made here is access, access, <coughs> access to God himself is through Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the steward of God and holds the key of David. John 14, 6. A text I know you're all familiar with. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He has the key of David. The only way you can get access to God the Father is through Jesus the Son. Everybody else through history says, I'll show you the way. Only Jesus says, I am the way. He says he opens and no one will shut and he and who shuts and no one opens. And this is an encouragement to that small church that God intentions for them is to spread something far nobler than Greek culture to the rest of the world. And that, of course, is the gospel. Look what he says in verse 8. I know your deeds, period. He knows their deeds. He doesn't go any more about their deeds after that point. He tells them, Behold, I have put before you an open door. That open door has set before them because of the persecution that they're experiencing. And why did he do this? Look again at verse 8. Because you have a little power or limited strength. This is a reference to the small number of believers 
and the church's limited influence, or both. Look what else he says in verse 8. And have kept my word and have not denied my name. Look around you. Big sanctuary you have, right? How many people do you think this place could hold? Maybe 200, give or take? Look around you. This church lacked size and statute in the community. They were looked down upon and persecuted. They had little authority or influence. However, they were faithful. And that's always a test for divine blessing. In the midst of severe persecution, they refused to deny Jesus. In the world's eyes, we may be few in number, a little power, a lack of influence, but we must remain faithful for Jesus to put that open door of ministry and opportunity before us, and we must have the courage to walk through that door. Look at what he says in verse 9. I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but they're not. Look what it says, but they lie. This is God's promise to his people that he will vindicate them among their enemies. It's referring to those Jews who severely persecuted them. They reject the Messiah and persecute God's people. Therefore, they do not belong to God. They belong to Satan. That's not my words. That's the words of the text. Those who belong to the synagogue of Satan. It reminds you back in John chapter 8, verse 42 and following. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's only two people you can follow, God or Satan. Those are strong words of the text. Either belong to God or you belong to Satan. And this is where it gets interesting. Look in verse 9. He says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. Literally before your feet. Now the question becomes, is this a promise just back then to that church? Or does it make a promise for churches in the future and us today? Well, an Old Testament background for this is found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 19 through 24, and also verse 32. And in that passage, you will find Ezekiel previewing God's plans for his ancient people, the Jews. For a period that will follow the dysphoria, when they were scattered, God scattered them. But God would regather them from all the nations, but not due to any favoritism for the Jews. Rather, the purpose of all this was to sanctify God's holy name. Because the Jews, wherever they went, profaned God's holy name. When Israel is regathered, God's name is hallowed before the eyes of the Jews. And all nations will know that he is the one true God. You take that with the next statement and make them know that I have loved you. 
That's why most interpreters, and I agree with them, would see this as an already but not yet. There might have been an incidence in Philadelphia where this actually happened, but I think it has an eschatology reference that one day people are going to bow down and acknowledge who Christ is. Because on that day, in the end times, it will become apparent not only to the Jews, but to all the nations that Jesus Christ is Lord. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Well, like I said, an event like this could have happened back in Philadelphia in that time. I'm just not aware of it. But I think it's also a problem for us today. You see what's going on in the world? What they're saying? What they're doing? Dearly beloved, this is a great promise for us. A day is coming when everything will be set straight. It reminds me of the time when Jesus was standing before Pilate. And after he'd been scourged, almost beaten half to death, he's standing there and Pilate goes, I'm paraphrasing, don't you know I have the power to give you life, to set you free? Jesus says, no. That power or authority is given to you from the who's above. And that's who Jesus was depending upon and trusting was his father. Because he knew in the end, he would be vindicated and justified. How does that make you feel today as a child of God that that day is coming? Look what he says next in verse 10. I, will also, I also will keep you from the hour of testing because of my perseverance. Look at the beginning of verse 10, and he makes this strong promise to keep them from the hour of testing. Now, we're told in the Bible to anticipate tribulation in the world. Persecution, persecution and martyrdom will always be a part of the life of the church. When you get to chapters 6 through 19 in Revelation, you cannot read that central message without concluding incredible, difficult times are coming that await prophetic fulfillment. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, it's Jesus speaking. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now I don't have the time to really pick this apart, but I want you to know this great tribulation and other texts is limited to seven years, perhaps. You've heard of that, seven years tribulation. You can find that stated in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. So we're talking about this great tribulation, this great temptation or trial. What's going to happen? That hour which is about to come upon the whole world. Once again, it comes to how you look at this. Is this a promise just to that church in that time? Or does it have fulfillment later down the road. And if it's only meant for the first century church, then what good would it be for you and I? How about the church for the last 20 centuries? Because we're in the, yeah, we're in the 21st century, correct? Wow. So eschatology always has this already but not yet to it. So keep that in mind. And when you read this text, because it's going to keep them from the hour of testing, that's when you come up for three different views very briefly. People talk about the pre-tribulation. And this talks about the church will be taken out of the world and will return with Christ seven years later as part of his millennial kingdom. So the church will not be present during this time of tribulation. Then you have mid-tribulation and post-tribulation. Now, one view says the church will have to go through all of it, that's post, or the church will have to go through part of it, of course that's mid 
And they say this because in the text itself, grammarly, the church is not mentioned anywhere and it's to be taken out of the world. All it said is that Christians will be kept from that hour. So what they say is, we'll be present during the time of tribulation, but we'll be protected from it. An Old Testament example would be the plagues upon Egypt when the uh, Israelites were there in captivity. Remember the, the plagues that happened to the Israelites, not necessarily, I mean, it happened to the Egyptians, not necessarily the, the, uh, the Israelites. It happened, hold on, I'm getting confused. It happened to the Egyptians, not the Israelites. Let me get that straight. All right? Now, there is substantial evidence perhaps the church is removed before the tribulation. For example, after chapter 3, the word church, the Greek word ecclesia, is not found anywhere after chapter 3 in the book of Revelation. Something to be said about that. And he talks about, I will keep you from it. So that's the, probably the best way of keeping us from it. Now, God can do what he wants. But let me sum it up like this. I don't have enough time to really dive into all this. It's hard to argue from silence. And there are people who hold to these. Don't get so wrapped up in where you fall in this that you miss the forest for the tree. The truth is, a tribulation is coming that we have never seen. You think it's bad now? Huh. Ain't nothing yet. And there's a judgment coming. And there's only two places you can go, heaven or hell. Only ways you go to heaven is having a relationship with Jesus Christ as both your Lord and Savior. Don't miss the forest for the trees. I hope I'm not here during that time. If that's what I hold to, then I better make sure that I am ready and in right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. When God's judgment is unleashed in unprecedented form, I hope the reward for the church is we won't hear, be here to see any of it or experience that. But once again... The only way that can possibly happen is you have a relationship with Christ. Do not miss that point. Look what he says in verse 11. I am coming quickly. I am coming soon. And that is a primary emphasis of the entire book. And that his coming will be, bring vindication and reward. Hold fast what you have that no one will take your crown. Hold fast. The emphasis here is on continual effort. Never stop. Never quit. Continual effort is what needed to maintain your walk with the Lord. Now, when he talks about so that no one will take your crown, under no circumstances is he talking about one losing their salvation. However, with the intensity of persecution they were facing, it was possible they would fall, follow the pattern of the church in Sardis, giving in to pressure, and so by doing, forfeiting rewards. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 13 and 50, but in the context of those verses, Paul is talking about building upon the true foundation, which is Christ Jesus. Look what he says, look what he, listen to what he says in verse 13. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it will it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work with which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If a man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. 
but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about rewards. The only thing you can build upon is Christ. If you build anything else apart from Christ, it's going to be burned up is the point. And he's warning them, hold fast to what you got. Don't lose your reward. He's not saying you're going to lose your salvation. No, he said, do not lose that reward that Christ has for you. And that is true for us today as it was true back then. Now, verse 12, perhaps my favorite verse in all this passage. Look what he says. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The apostles, the leading apostles were referred to as pillars. And in 1 Timothy 3, chapter 15, the church is the pillar and support of truth. The idea here is one of stability and permanence. See, they never felt secure because of the earthquakes and economic disasters. They always leave the city because the aftershocks would happen. There'd be cracks in the wall. They won't get away from that. And Jesus is telling them, if you overcome, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, there's no need for a temple in New Jerusalem. The city itself will be the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. The word pillar here is being used as a metaphor. The permanent place that the believer has in the final kingdom. So all this shifting and chaos you see happening in your city, you'll have a place that's secure and stable forever and the temple of God, God. And that holds true for us today. Look at what's happening. We have a war going on in Ukraine. We have possible food storage coming our way. All this stuff happening. This world is so, it's shifting so much. Would you not agree? Nothing is built solid. And what Christ is telling his church then and telling us today is you can have stability, security. You'll never have to worry about that ever again. Look what he says in verse 12 again. He will not go out from it anymore. Never again will he leave. Remember that earthquake in AD 17 that forced all the populace outside the city? He is promising that they will be secure in the city of God. They will never be dislodged from their homes. Their lives now are characterized by uncertainty and weakness. They suffer physical harm and external persecution. And this will not be true in the city in which they will spend Eternity. Everything you experience here will all cease to exist in heaven. And the most, how can I put this? The most exciting thing to me is the absence of sin, period, will be gone. What does that look like? Do you realize this? He will be there, we'll see him as he truly is. Our eyesight, our faith will now become our eyesight. We'll see all these things we talked about and read about. But there will be no more gossip, no more backbiting, no more greed, no more pain, no more death, no more goodbyes. What does that look like? What does that feel like? I have no idea, but I cannot wait to find out. Because everything in this world is so temporary. People I've lost over these past years, I want them back. But I know one day... (laughs) One day I will see them again. And on that day, everything else will be gone. We'll be living in a perfect city with a perfect God for all eternity to worship him and to get to know him. Look, he says, I will 
write on him the name of my God. To have the name of my God is to belong to the, the God. You, if you're a believer, you have the name of God on you. You belong to him. And the name of the city of my God speaks of citizenship. Our name is changed to that of God's. For the city of Philadelphia, the relationship to the city was patronage. But for the Christian, it's sonship. The emperor betrayed his promises, made the city cut half of the vines. But however, God will never betray his trust. You belong to him, and you're a citizen of heaven if you're a believer in Christ. Do you really fully get that this morning? Yes, I'm a citizen of the United States. I've served my country in the military. But my true citizenship is not of this world. It's in heaven where God is. We must never forget that. The new Jerusalem, he says in verse 12, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Now fulfills the biblical promise of life in the presence of God. You see that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. The contrast is living in the city of Philadelphia that had no settled structure. Do we have any settled structure here in America? Everything going to be gone. What did COVID teach us? If anything, how temporary this life can be. In a blink of an eye, things can change. Buildings in Philadelphia could be torn apart. And it's tremendously encouraging to them back in that ancient city of Philadelphia and to us to know that our citizenship is in heaven. Talks about in my new name. Now, most likely, this is hidden until the end times. We're not quite sure what that is. But see, the most amazing thing is not the fact what that name means or what it is. The most amazing fact is that we will share in it. That's the most amazing fact. Philadelphia. Small church. Not much influence. Not many believers Look what they are promised. We just touch the tip of the iceberg. We go back through it and find so much more. How do you describe Forestburg Baptist Church? A small, rural church. Not many believers. Not many influences. This letter should scream encouragement to all of us in here this morning. If we remain faithful, he will continue to put that door of opportunity before us. But we have to have the courage and the trust in him to walk through that door when it's there. Every small church in a difficult area finds this letter very encouraging. Every Christian that's uncertain about his or her gift or about his or her place in the church, the basic, matter, uh, the basic message of this letter is profound. That God is, listen to me, God is more interested in faithfulness than he is success. That's what I just said. He's more interested in faithfulness than success. That means I get with fellow pastors on Monday morning. Yeah, we talk about how many people are there. I mean, that comes up. How many people you have yesterday? It's almost like whoever has the most is more successful than this other church. But here's the question. How faithful are you to preach that word, even though you knew that might make some people mad at you? 
Are you going to handle the text correctly and accurately as you possibly can to remain faithful to the God who called you? Bottom line. That's what God's looking for. That's what he desires. This letter begins and ends with perseverance. Overcoming any and all obstacles by recognizing the supremacy of God and the importance of having Christ in our lives. How many believers do we have in the house? Let's say amen as loud as you can. All right, there you go. You will be vindicated. You will be vindicated. You will be given new names, and you are citizens of the new Jerusalem. Therefore, we must remain steadfast, unwavering, persistent, committed, firm, dedicated, and devoted. Now, with all we've talked about in a short amount of time, I cannot stress this enough, there's more to look at, more questions to answer to this text. But as we briefly walk through it, and everything we've talked about and heard, will you pray now? Not for blessings, not for uh, pain to go away, but simply to pray, God, use me any way you see fit, no matter what the cost. And will you pray that God will use Forestburg Baptist Church any way he sees fit, no matter what the cost? That is the huge lesson I see screaming off the page at me when I read about the church in Philadelphia. He knew their deeds. He didn't have to explain any more. And he gives those wonderful promises to them. I guess it comes back to the old question, doesn't it? Do we really believe what we say we believe? Especially when life squeezes you. You've heard this illustration before. If you squeeze tomatoes, what do you get? (laughs) Ketchup. Tomato juice. If you take apples and you squeeze apples, what do you get? When you take a follower of Christ and life begins to squeeze them, what should you get? You should get Jesus. I don't know what's going on, but I trust Jesus. Have you done that? Have you truly given your life to Christ? It means you surrender control. You can surrender everything in your life, and you hand it over to him. And you say, here I am. Use me any way you see fit. Perhaps you've come to Christ. Praise God. I hate to say this to you, but it's true. Things are going to get worse before they get better. In the midst of everything that can possibly happen... Are you willing to stand up and say, God, use me any way you see fit, no matter what the cost? Because at the end of the day, that's what really matters. I believe with every fiber of my being, that's what God called this church to do. To constantly recommit ourselves to saying, yes, it's your way, God. We don't have it all figured out. We don't know how things are going to go from step to step, 
But Lord, we know this. You're trustworthy. You're the true one. You're the holy one. You have the key of David. You're it. In a world that is shifting with every way the wind blows, there's nothing permanent. Can I just ask you a question? How much longer are you going to follow a belief system that changes every time the wind changes direction? And when you're going to say, enough is enough. I'm tired of doing everything it tells me to do, and I end up in the same place. Heartache. Pain. Destruction. I'm tired of going through the motions, getting the same results. It stops here and now. I'm going to start following God with every fiber of my being. And I believe any citizen of that church of Philadelphia would tell us the same thing. Be faithful, no matter what the cost. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read this book that you've given us. That gives us insight. To what you desire. Inside about what is to come. And Father, we know no matter what, we can trust you. We can depend upon you. And you are faithful. We may never know what the day may hold, but we know you hold a day in your hands. Father, I pray that anyone in the sound of my voice who has not surrendered his or her life over to you, making Jesus Christ both their Lord and Savior, I pray that that will happen today. Present that door of opportunity, and Father, give them the courage to walk through it. And for the rest of us, Father, I pray as we see opportunities that you give us that we will take advantage of it. And likewise, have the courage to walk through it. May we be found faithful. May you say of us, as you said of the church of Philadelphia, that we have kept your word and we haven't denied your name. Continue to move among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?